Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Tonight, we're starting a brand new series uh, that is appropriately titled Spiritual Warfare. Okay. I've been teasing this for like, I don't know how long, like months now. I've been teasing this series. Uh, But we are going to do a four-week-long series that goes from the theological to the practical. Uh, We're going to talk about demons and the divine counsel. What What is that? We're going to talk about uh, lies and truth, about talking snakes and the occult. We're going to get into all sorts of different things. And I figure that you guys are ready for this. Yeah. I figure of like any church, who's ready for spiritual warfare? This church is ready for spiritual warfare. Okay. One disclaimer about this evening, okay? So one disclaimer about this evening. Uh, I'm going to need you to like slip into the back pocket, pull out the theology cap, Fix it on your head a little bit, okay? Because tonight's going to be a teaching. Sometimes I get up here and I'm like trying to encourage and exhort and I'm trying to be prophetic. Maybe some of that's going to happen, but we're going to learn some things tonight, okay? There's going to be some things that you thought you knew and you were wrong. (laughs) And there's going to be some things that you didn't know and you're like, wait, what? And it's actually in the Bible. It's totally crazy. So um, there's a lot of work that we're going to do tonight that's going to set the scene for the next three weeks after this. So tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to develop our spiritual, supernatural worldview. I want us to develop a supernatural worldview. Uh, There's a famous philosopher named Charles Taylor who uh, wrote a book called A Secular Age. Anybody ever heard of A Secular Age before? A couple people? Okay, it's huge. It's like a 900-page book. And and his, his basic premise was trying to explain why 500 years ago it was unheard of to not believe in God. And then 500 years later, it's almost unheard of to believe in God. It's like, how did culture go from from that being the predominant belief system to the entire, the the exact opposite being the entire uh, belief system? And in this book, he essentially starts with this quote uh, from a well-known entertainer. And here's what the entertainer says. The entertainer said, I don't believe in God anymore, but I miss him. And, and, and what's interesting about this sentiment is that this is one that I think many people in our world share today. It's like, I don't believe in God, but I do remember when I used to be excited and inspired and I used to participate in this church community, but I just don't anymore. I had to put those childish things beside me um, or behind me. And, and, and I think that many in our culture have begun to believe that everything with the correct applied scientific method could be explained. Everything can be, has an explanation behind it. But, but Charles Taylor, he, what he noticed culturally speaking in this, in this book of his is that there is this longing for the mystical uh, or for the supernatural in many people's lives even though they don't believe in it. And he, he called this being cross-pressured. That was his language for it. It's like you're pressured from two different angles. And, and so he said, you know, in our culture, we're mystics and we're cynics at the same time. 
And he said, but we, we long for a God to love or to hate all the while we say he doesn't exist. It's like, well, who are you mad at then? <laughs> and, and, and so Charles Taylor essentially said, we either fit into one of two worldviews at the most basic level when we participate in the West. And to, to, to kind of describe these two different worldviews, he used uh, the metaphor of a box. So here's a box. Uh, and, he's, and he said, either your worldview is a closed worldview. And so if you imagine like the entire universe fits into a box, it's your box, it's your universe, and, and either that box is closed to outside influence, in other words, everything within the universe, everything within your box has a reason, has an explanation, has a logical a, a, you know, reality behind everything, or fundamentally you believe that the box's lid is opened and that there is potential for things to come in from outside the box to affect uh, and impact the, your universe that is in the box. Now, as believers, maybe you're sitting here tonight, you're like, well, I'm a believer, so obviously I have an open box worldview. I believe that God reached into humanity. I believe that he created. I believe that Jesus exists and was a real person and wasn't just a person, he was actually God, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and so, yeah, we as believers, we have an open box. But let me ask you this. If the lid is open, what else can get in? If the lid is open... You guys, yes, yeah, we have somebody saying nothing and somebody saying weird stuff. We're going to find out. If the lid is open, what else can get in? Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. We're actually going to spend a lot of time in the book of Genesis this evening uh, because when starting something, begin at the beginning, right? And I want to talk a little bit about the battle for Eden and the wayward cherub. The Battle for Eden and the Wayward Cherub. Likely, if you have uh, grown up in or around the church, you have come to think of spiritual warfare as a mystical and somewhat shrouded venture of battling Satan and demons. There's, if there's a select few of very hardened, tough Christians who have the ability to battle Satan or battle demons, um, and, and, and likely you've simplified the battle in your mind to this. There's a good guy, and that's God, and there's a bad guy, and that's the devil, and that we are in the Lord's army, right? And so we battle the devil alongside of angels. That's kind of most people's basic functional understanding of spiritual warfare. This is close to the truth, but it's not the whole truth. The reality is that the Bible is much more complex and nuanced than that. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How does the, earth, the universe function? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, now, the earth was formless and empty. Some of your translations will say formless and void. There's nothing there. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Where is that? <laughs> and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Wait, have the waters been created yet? What we're learning from the very beginning of the first page of the scriptures is that from the very outset, the earth is not a very hospitable place. It's not hospitable. It's like, the, it's, it's how can the earth, like think of the earth, how can this object of matter be formless? Isn't it matter? How can it be void and empty? Isn't it like a giant piece of mass? What is going on here? 
It's kind of even like, you know, especially in the Hebrew mind, this is kind of spooky language. It's an earth without form. It's, it's a, there's a deep there. What, how deep is it? Can you fall down this deep? Uh, there's, there's waters. It's chaotic. And that's the word that I want you to pay attention to. From the very beginning, what we see in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, is that the creation, before God does a bunch of stuff that he's going to do, and, and we'll get there, the creation is chaos. It's incredibly chaotic. It's an inhospitable place. I, I, I like to think of it almost being like this. Imagine being dropped onto Mars with no spacesuit. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's, it's completely inhospitable to humans. Now, what follows in chapter 1 is this incredibly violent act of God. And, and really, you're like, violent? What are you talking about? Well, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's cutting and it's stabbing and it's slicing and it's smashing together that's taking place. That's, those are the Hebrew verbs that are being used in the rest of the chapter. And essentially what God is doing is he's taking this formless, void, chaotic landmass that is earth with this giant deep and waters, and he's cutting it and he's saying, okay, I'm making a cut here, land is here, water's here. I'm making a splice here, air is here, plants are here. And he's, he's forming things, and he's taking this chaos, and he's bringing about order. Now, to continue that ordering of the world, he creates humans. Flip over to verse 26. Verse 26. Then God said, after he made, he's made all of this land and all of these animals and all of this stuff, It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Interesting, notice that word. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase. Everybody say, increase. In number, fill the earth and subdue it. Say, subdue. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Human beings also were created with a purpose. We also were cut for a reason, so to speak. And that reason is to rule. And notice, there's something that needs to be ruled. There's something that needs to be, in the language of Genesis chapter 1, subdued, right? There's this other, it's it's this idea that there's actually raw material out there in the universe that needs to be brought into order, and humans are going to participate in that bringing of order out of chaos. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, we learn there's raw material in the garden. There's these resins, there's onyx, there's these stones, there's, you know, the, the, there's wood. It's, al- it's almost like Age of Empires. You ever played that video game? You just get, you're like, I need more onyx, I need more wood or whatever. Well, Genesis 2, the garden has it. And why is there raw material in the garden? Well, essentially what's being said is, is that the garden is good, but it's not perfect. It's not actually complete. It, it, and, and, and what I want to show, what I want to hopefully convince you of is, is to show you, look, if it was perfect, he, God would have just put Adam and Eve into the garden and said, hey, relax. Enjoy yourself. This is a lifelong eternal vacation. That's not what he says. He says, you've got some ruling to do, and you've got some subduing to do. Okay? And, and, and so it needed further ordering. I would dare say it needed further expanding. If you know the story, God calls all of it good, 
but never once does he call it perfect. Look down your Bibles, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this question when you've read this, but one of the questions that I've had is, what is good about it? What's so good about it? What is he referring to there? Is he, is he saying, hey, the garden's so pretty, it's really good. It's like, a, like I can tell outside there's a nice sunset that's happening. We'll get there. Probably not in time. Sorry, guys. Uh, you know, it's like, it's, like I, it's like, this is really beautiful. This is good. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, I just really enjoy it. This is like, man, this is an enjoyable place. It's so good. It could be either of those things, and maybe it's a mix of both, but I think that it is, what we're seeing when he says it's good is a celebration of correct function. He's a designer. He's made a design. He says his design is good because it's functioning correctly. He is saying that things are good because they are ordered so I'm, you see what I'm doing right now is I'm like saying there was chaos and there was order. This is the dichotomy that we're seeing right now, and God is behind one of those, okay? God has just ordered the chaos, the formless and the void, and in doing so, he has given it all a function or a purpose in life. He's like, water, you're wet. You do this. Sky, you do this. Birds, you do this. Fish, you do this. Creeping things, it's in there. I don't know what they are. Creeping things, you creep, okay? So go ahead and, and start creeping. And, and, and even humans have a function. And their function is that they help rule this newly ordered world. It is important to see that if God's connection to creation through his voice, through his hands being on things, his connection to creation brings about purpose, here's the key, then God's disconnection with creation brings about chaos and purposelessness, okay? So you're like, is, does life have purpose? With him connected to it, it does. Without him, it doesn't. So, so here's the metaphor that I want you to get about Eden. I want you to imagine um, a warring general who is about, he's up in the mountains with his troop, and he's about to take a, a, a village down in the valley. What does he do in the mountains? He's got the high ground. He sets up a camp. He sets up a, a home base where they're going uh, to, to, to be able to base themselves out of. He sets up an outpost, if you will. And this is what I think is happening in Genesis chapter 1, is that God uh, seems to have designed Eden as an outpost of heaven on the physical world of earth. <laughs> Hang on with me. God's intentions from the beginning were heaven on earth. That's what he wants. Heaven on earth. Uh, it's like, is that a Jesus thing? I mean, it is a Jesus thing, but it's a Yahweh thing. It's a creator thing, okay? God's intentions from the beginning were heaven on earth, and Eden is just the beginning. Because what we see is that Eden has borders. <laughs> You're like, was Eden the whole world? Well, no. Because Eden has borders, and there's a place for Adam and Eve to go outside of those borders after Genesis chapter 3, if you know the story. Okay, so Eden did not, earth was not completely covered by Eden. So might I put forth to you this evening that it was the human's job to rule well and to expand, what does he say, increase, remember? It was their job to expand and increase Eden, heaven on earth, through relationship with God and purpose rather than allowing chaos to be the dominant culture across the earth. That was the mission. That was the goal, okay? 
Okay, flip to Genesis chapter three, verse one. Like I said, we're doing a lot. And we're just getting started, by the way. This is like, that was like point one. We're going, there's more, okay? Genesis chapter three, verse one. Here's where people, I'm gonna lose some of you, okay? Well, I'm not gonna lose you. The Bible's gonna lose you. It's not, okay. I'm not taking that on. Uh, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That word for crafty there is wise. He's more wise than any other animal. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now pause, look up. God didn't say that. What God said is you can eat from any tree, just not from this one tree, okay? So, so um, instantly all we have to figure out about this serpent, what is his MO or what, what is he trying to do? He is trying to contradict God and take a lie and get it into God's people's minds, that's what serpents do. That's what serpent stuff, that's serpent stuff, okay? All right. Now, uh, who is this serpent? <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? You're like, and where did he come from? And why is he in Eden of all places? Couldn't he be outside the borders? Like, aren't there some, like, some guardians to guard the borders of Eden? Well, how did he get in there? Well, what we see here is that this serpent is a created being. It said that, you know, the snake is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Okay, that's interesting. And he's obviously gotten into Eden somehow to thwart God's intentions of heaven on earth or order instead of chaos. The serpent's goal is chaos. Now, how does he do it? He questions God. Did God really say? He thwarts heaven on earth through attempting to get humans to take on his reality instead of God's reality. This will be the this is the this is the definition of spiritual warfare. We're building it right here. Now, more on this next week. We don't have it, I'm not going to go into a deep dive on this uh, tonight. But tonight, I want to focus on who this serpent is, because maybe you've had that question as well. Like, who is this serpent? Um, well, what we're told in Genesis chapter three, this is later on in, in the passage when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, we're told that the garden is populated not only with humanity and animals, but there are these spiritual guardians uh, in the Hebrew named Keravim. Can you say that with me? Keravim. And they're posted at the exits of the garden, okay? These Keravim. Uh, that word can also be Kerub or Cherub, okay? Could it be that this snake was actually a cherub, a cherub, intended to guard Eden, but through hubris, he initiated the collapse of Eden? Is that possible? You're like, you better have some evidence. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel 28 helps us out a little bit here. Ezekiel has, he's a prophet of Israel, and uh, he has a prophetic oracle about the serpent in the garden. And, And this is fascinating language. Listen to what he says. He's speaking about the serpent. You were the seal of perfection. Wow. Full of wisdom. We've heard that. And perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. That's interesting. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub. So I threw you to the earth. Is this the snake? (laughs) Could it be? Well, remember, this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. 
He says, uh, you know, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replies, oh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Didn't we just read about a fall from God's space? I have given you authority to trample on snakes. That's kind of interesting. And on scorpions. And to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And then later on in the New Testament, John, the author of the book of Revelation, he seems to pick up on this theme in Revelation 20 when talking about what God will do to the devil in the end of the age. It says this, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. Okay, who is, who's this ancient serpent? Who is the devil or Satan? And bound him for a thousand years. Okay, so here's my take. Like, here's how we do theology. How we do theology is we take all of the various theological data points that we possibly can, and then we try to come to conclusions that have the least issues and make the most sense of all of the theological data points, okay? That's the best way to do theology. That's how we do biblical theology. Uh, here's my take. Next slide. And this is like kind of meaty, so maybe like take a picture of it or something. The serpent, a heavenly ruler, this cherub, wanted the human's earthly authority in order to sow chaos on earth, and he gets their authority by tempting the human rulers with the very heavenly authority that they already had in relationship with God. Eat from this fruit and you will be like God. They already were. They were made in his image. <laughs> so take a moment to, like, to like let that, that sink in. Here's what I'm saying. The serpent in Genesis chapter 3, this guardian cherub, is a heavenly ruler who wanted humans' earthly authority. Why does he want earthly authority? Because he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. He, if he had it, he would have come into the garden with a sword. He would have come in with a, with, with a gun. He, he comes in not with any of those things. He comes in with a suggestion to try to get them to agree with him, which shows me one thing. He doesn't have any authority unless humans give him authority. In order to sow chaos on earth, and he gets their authority by tempting the human rulers with the very heavenly authority that they already had in relationship with God. Get this thing outside of relationship with God. You'll be like gods. This, my friends, is the core of all spiritual warfare. This. It is Satan's desire for earthly control that leads him to get us to believe lies. And humans, we err when we attempt to be heavenly gods outside of relationship with Yahweh. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, wow, I've never thought about Ezekiel 28 like that. Now, okay, what about demons? What about demons? You got the serpent. What about demons? Well, this is a bit more storied than we think as well. So, so let's start in Job. <laughs> you're like, really? Demons in Job? Let's start in Job. After being accused of doing evil, okay, remember, God's been accused of doing evil by all of Job's friends, even by I actually don't think Job does it, but all of his friends do it. They say, this is because of God. He's done this evil to you. God sort of takes Job to task by asking him if he understands the workings of the universe. He's like, do you understand how everything works? Because you and your friends seem to think you do. And it's just sort of stunning. It, it really is. Here, here's Job uh, chapter 34, verse 4. He says this, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. <laughs> it's actually hilarious. Uh, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? 
or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, let me ask you this. Was there anybody alive when God laid the universe's foundations? Any humans alive? It's not a trick question. We just read Genesis 1. No, there weren't. They come later. Who are these sons of God? Who are these stars that can sing? Aside from being an awesome moment in the story of Job, this is one of the first glimpses, at least chronologically, we get of the spiritual world behind the physical world, and we see two types of beings that I think could be two different names for the same kind of beings, and I'll explain why. Stars that sing and, quote, sons of God. Some of your Bibles, when you go there, will have sons of Israel. Now, here's the problem. Israel doesn't exist before the foundations of the world. And the word there is not uh, sons of Israel, it's sons of Elohim. It's B'nai Elohim in Hebrew. Okay, so what you may be thinking now is, well, that's just flowery language. Stars that sing, that's the whole Testament's full of all kinds of stuff like that. Or maybe this is just metaphor about, you know, nature or something like that. Here's the problem. The same language is found elsewhere. Speaking about the pride of the serpent, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven. There's that fall that we've been hearing about. Morning star, son of the dawn. Wait, morning star? Stars that sing. Morning star. That's interesting. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above, what? (laughs) The stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. Okay, what we're seeing here is that the ancient mind, stars, this, we know what stars are, they're like, they're like burning balls of fire in outer space, but to the ancient mind, stars were thought to be gods who moved around, okay? They saw them and they were kind of moving around the sky and they'd see them in different positions and all of that stuff, and they believed that the stars were the heavenly host. You've heard that language probably all throughout the Bible. Um, and, and that these, these stars or these, this collection of divine beings ruled the sky, or in the ancient mind, they ruled the heavens. That's the heavens, right? And that these stars, uh, or in other language, these sons of God were there before anything or anyone had been created on earth, and that they make up this assembly of sorts, right? Here, put up that passage again. Uh, if you, if you, so, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, Okay, so who's assembling on this mount of assembly? Well, these sons of God are these stars. And, and, and this is really um, kind of the, the first inkling that we get of like, okay, wait, are there, is there, is there, there's God. I know there was God who is in the spiritual world. And I knew that there were like demons, but what, there's this assembly happening. There's this council that he like assembles together. And Satan wanted to be above that assembly. Like what's going on? Well, The clearest example of this assembly or of this divine council in the unseen world is in Psalm uh, 82. And here's what the psalmist says. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Interesting. The gods know nothing. They are darkened. They understand nothing. They walk around uh, in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. Now, the word uh, for God here is Elohim, Elohim in Hebrew. And in the grammatical context, there's a singular Elohim, God, who stands among plural Elohims, (laughs) okay? 
There is one God amongst a council or an assembly of other gods. And here God is expressing his superiority to the other gods. They know nothing. They don't understand anything, right? The evidence for this view mounts as we see this council at play. Like, do we actually see this council making any decisions? We do in Job chapter 1. Here we go. Now there was a day when the sons of God, what? You guys, there's so many of you right now, they're like, I have never seen sons of God in my Bible before, and now you're going to start seeing them all over. They're all over the place. Uh, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Oh, and by the way, Satan also came among them. (laughs) You're like, ugh, what a rough crowd. Um, So God's about, and what is God going to do? He's about to make a decision about Job, right? And who does he have come help him make that decision about Job? The sons of God this council of his, and Satan is among the council. Now, it's important, we'll get to it in a later teaching. The word Satan uh, is not a name, it's a title. It's a position. And the, the word Satan is prosecutor. That's what it is, it's the accuser. And so he's playing a role on this council of accusing Job. I bet if you didn't bless Job so much, he wouldn't worship you. He only worships you because uh, you bless him. And so what he's doing is he's, he's setting out a case, a prosecutorial case against Job. That's what the accuser does. That's what the Satan does. So to summarize, here's what's going on. Here's like, I'm losing some of you guys. I can tell on your faces. Here's, what, here's what's going on. There is this place of assembly that we learned about in Isaiah 14, verse 13, where a council of Elohim meet. That's what we learned about in Psalm 82. To make decisions about the ruling of the world, that's what we see in Job chapter 1. It is important to see that this council is not made up of angels. Nowhere does the word malak or angelos, which are the two Hebrew and Greek words respectively for the term, for the word angel show up in any of these passages, okay? But we need to realize that it is Elohim who fell and have become demons. How do I know? Well, here's what Deuteronomy chapter 32 says. They sacrifice, speaking of Israel, they sacrifice to demons which are not God, gods they had not known. So uh, if you were to look at the transliterated Hebrew, uh, here's what is, it's specifically making this connection between Elohim and demons. Here's what it would look like if you kind of had the transliterated uh, words in there. So they sacrifice to demons, Shedim. That's the word for demons in Hebrew, Shedim. Not God, Eloah, to gods, Elohim, whom they had not known. So there's a specific, clearly, clear uh, connection between the Shadim and the Elohim who Israel has found themselves worshiping in the foreign land that they have gone into. Okay, you guys ready to come up for air? Okay, we're going to come up for air, okay? And, and, and here, here's, here's the summary, okay? So if you've got nothing else, here's like the Sparknotes version of, of it all. Uh, the serpent cherub is a fallen Elohim who has other fallen Elohim who were on the council of Yahweh Elohim, but who in their pride have become demons who people worship in error, thus thwarting God's Eden project. Okay, that's the spiritual world that's going on behind the scenes. This is what the Bible is, get, is bearing witness to. So does anybody have any questions? <laughs> You're like, uh, yeah. Okay, um, you will likely have lots, and welcome to the Bible. Like, that's, you're like, you think you came here for answers? This is not an answer book. Like, there are so many more questions. It's, it is designed to lead you to dependence, okay? So you're going to have a lot of questions. Um, so, so, so 
in this series, hopefully we'll answer some of your questions, but hopefully there's more that come up. And, that, and we don't do this like, sometimes we do this in the West where we want things to be repeatable and we love curriculum so much that we just turn everything into just, well, this is what it is. Just clean, boom, that's what it is. And, and the Bible just doesn't fit into clean stuff like that sometimes. So um, for tonight, I wanna address just like a couple questions that might be like percolating out there. Okay, so here's one question. Uh, Who's that serpent again? Well, remember, he's a wayward cherub, okay? Uh, He's a pride-filled heavenly being who was cast out of heaven and landed in human space. I don't know why. I don't know why God allowed it. I don't know how. It just happened, okay? That's what the Bible says. I'm not gonna go beyond it. Much more on him in the later teachings. Now, what are demons? You're like, okay, but what about demons? I'm still kind of confused. They're Elohim. I never even heard that word before. We'll get used to it. We're gonna be talking Elohim a lot. Um, but, but demons are fallen Elohim who, who fell along with Satan. They actually came together. They thought, we'll raise ourselves above Yahweh Elohim. And this guy's been bossing us around telling us that we don't know anything and we're angry about that. You know, I don't know what the conversations were like in heaven. But, you know, anyways, they have chosen to align themselves with the serpent of chaos rather than the God of order. Okay. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, well, do we know, like, okay, so there's these Elohim gods. Are they real gods? Like, I thought there was just one God. Isn't this like, aren't you guys like monotheists? And here you are talking about multiple gods. Um, like, do we know these gods even exist? Well, sure we do. First uh, Kings chapter 11 describes various gods of the nations that Israel has been oppressed by. Uh, the, the god of a- Ashtoreth, uh, that's the god of, of Sidon. Uh, you have Molech, who's the god of the Ammonites. Uh, you have Chemish, who's the god of Moab. The Bible is full of other gods, right? And these gods that Israel legitimately worshipped. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we learn that at the Tower of Babel, when God divided people into nations, he gave the nations to the gods. You're like, why would you do that? Uh, I don't know. I'm not God, okay? Uh, But it says that he gave the nations to these various gods according to the number of the sons of God. Go ahead and read it in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, but do these gods actually have real power? Do I need to worry about these gods? Um, Like, are they real? Well, we have record of these gods uh, actually um, causing these these, um, Egyptian magicians uh, to have the power or the ability to do just what Moses and Aaron had done with their staves as well. But here's the thing, they're nothing in comparison to Yahweh. There There is a a common refrain throughout the entire Old Testament called denial statements. And this is where a lot of people go, oh, see, there are no other gods because essentially what these statements say is that there's no God like Yahweh. And they're so strong, they're so exalted in language that you can leave them thinking, well, there must not be any other gods. Um, The denial statements do not exist to say that there are no other gods that exist but that the other God's power pales in comparison to Yahweh's so much that it's like they're nothing. Here's what Exodus chapter 15 says. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Or the psalmist in Psalm 97 says, Lord, you are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. It would be odd for the psalmist or for the prophet to say, God, you're greater than this thing that doesn't exist. (laughs) No, they probably exist. He's just a lot greater than them. So maybe the question gets a little bit more practical and you go, well, what kind of role can these gods have in my life? Like, am I at at risk? You know, what about demonic possession? I thought this was spiritual warfare. Talk about demonic possession. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. But tonight, I want you to see 
the bigger picture. The influence of the enemies of God are in all of life. We live in a broken world. And so we are either giving ourselves to purposeless chaos by participating in serpent stuff, or we are giving ourselves to the purposeful orderer, Yahweh himself. There's no middle ground. You're either doing one of those two things. And what I want you to see, hopefully, is that there's really good news about the goodness of God in chaos. It's about the goodness of God, this message. See, the very notion of spiritual warfare means that there is a good God who has good for his creation. Otherwise, there would be no warfare. And so what you need to see from the very beginning, God has been at war. Right after the serpent sows his first seed of chaos into this world and deceives the humans, here's what God declares in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and notice this, between your offspring and hers. There are people who are offspring of the serpent and there are people who are offspring of the true human. He, the offspring of, of the human, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Scholars believe that it's the resurrection and the cross where Jesus is pierced and he, his heel is stricken, so to speak, but the head of the serpent has been crushed and the New Testament confirms that all things have been placed underneath the feet of, of Jesus and there is now power. There are even people going around the first century who were invoking the name of Jesus uh, to set people free from demonic influence. What Genesis 1 through 3 tells us is that the serpent simply deconstructs. That's what he does. The serpent deconstructs what God has constructed. His natural state is disorder. And so without God, there is no goodness. Like, is there actually goodness in this world? Well, without God, no. There is no purpose in your pain without God. There is no purpose in your suffering without God. There's chaos. There's serpent stuff. But what the story of Genesis tells us is that there is a God and he is interested in humans not wallowing in purposeless pain until they die, but he is interested in doing something about that pain, about that hurt, and about the horror, and he will actually include humans in that rescue plan. God isn't the author of chaos. He doesn't, I don't believe God is in control. I think there's a serpent who is in control of a lot of stuff but that God is the one with a plan and he's the one who's greater than the other gods. So align with him. Don't waste another moment. Stop, stop the serpent stuff. And in a large sense, this, this whole series, I hope to scare you away from serpent stuff. I hope to scare you away from, some, from things that the serpent has used to get hold in your life. So let me ask you this. As you're sitting there tonight, has someone got into your open box do you look around you and see chaos? I do. What will you do about it? This is where spiritual warfare comes in. Spiritual warfare isn't something that the select few in the church do. It's not something that's spooky or like the movies with heads spinning. Spiritual warfare is the very reason that we're here on earth. We're here to join in the spiritual warfare, the expansion of Eden. We exist to align ourselves with Yahweh Elohim that we might see heaven cover the entire earth. So you can try to make sense of the chaos while participating kind of in God stuff and kind of in serpent stuff, or you can become a snake crusher. Let's stand together.
Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.